This last December, we here at Pathway were involved in a very important project. We have been working to give joy to the world. And if you've been around Pathway any period of time, you already know that giving joy to the world is about providing clean wells or clean water in the form of wells around the world. And specifically in this year's project, our 10th year doing so, providing water, we are working in India in some of the most desperate circumstances that you'll find on the face of the globe. And so we've been striving to get water, clean water to these people so that they might be able to overcome the diseases that they have otherwise been dealing with, the problems and the issues that they have been facing, the things that are keeping them from living lives that are able to thrive. And uh, this is the circumstance that they are in. And we're making a difference with that in terms of water, but also in terms of living water. The living water of the gospel is something else that we are taking. And in fact, there in India, where any of these wells are going in, there is a church that is being planted in the name of Jesus Christ, and it is working to take the gospel into that place so that there might be victory over not just water issues, but over the death that might otherwise come spiritually also. So we're excited about that. And this is not just a project that we've been doing among the adults at Pathway, but our kids have been involved in this as well. And very excited about what the kids have accomplished. The kids actually, in the children's ministry throughout December, had uh, a competition that was going on between the different classes, and whichever class came out with the most money that was raised in the form of coins, that class won, and they actually got a donut party. I wish I'd have known of the donut party when it was happening, and I would have definitely been there to support them. But um, I didn't know that, but uh, nonetheless, they did so very well. And we wanted to give you a little bit of an idea, a little visual on just how well they did in bringing their coins. In the Royal Academy Preschool, the four-year-olds won, and in our Crosstown classes, the second graders won. Let me show you a little bit about what they brought. Kids, would you come on out and... Uh, help us to see a little bit of what you accomplished through this season. The kids each week would be bringing in their coins and they would drop it in the buckets and they would be collecting it and they would be learning about what it meant to take clean water. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you, kids, so very much. Thank you for being a part of this project. Look at what they have done here. Look at this. This is fantastic. You'll think it's even more fantastic when you hear how much is right here. $1,559.40 right here from our kids. Isn't that fantastic? So excited about that. Now, you're probably also wondering, well, how did we do overall as a church? And that's a great question because we've been working toward this goal. Well, the answer to that question is as a congregation through December, plus a little bit that we had carried over, we ended up with $62,200. Yeah, go ahead. That is absolutely fantastic. Now, you might remember that uh, I was mentioning that I had kind of a goal of 10 wells. And uh, 10 wells, the wells in India, are $6,500 a piece. That's $65,000. 
we are at $62,200. They said we couldn't get to 10. I beg to differ. I think we can. The Lord may still be working in your mind, in your life, about how he would have you maybe still participate in this. I believe that we can get this done this weekend so that we're able to provide those 10 wells. And I just want to thank you for your generosity. I want to thank you for your participation in this. So excited about what the kids have done, about what we together as Pathway have done, and the work that is going to be accomplished in India as a result. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful for all that has been accomplished already, just anticipating the work that is going to be done in India because of the generosity of this congregation. Lord, we thank you for the clean water that is going to dynamically impact lives. We thank you for the living water of the gospel that is going to do the very same thing. And as these funds are pulled together, as they are sent off, Lord, we pray that you would go before them, that you would impact lives and hearts and communities and a country with the gospel, a country that is so dominated by Hinduism, and that the gospel would go forward cleanly, clearly, that you would be providing in great ways. Lord, we know that you have desire. We know that you would desire to reach into the hearts and lives of those there. And Lord, you can use our little part in making a difference. And we look forward to hearing the reports of what has been accomplished through the efforts of the people of Pathway and the gift being blessed by you. And so we pray your blessing on that gift even now as we anticipate it going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a pleasure to welcome all of you to Pathway, whether you've come out in person. So good to be back together in person to see your faces after a couple of weeks of online-only worship. If you are still doing online-only, that's perfectly fine. We're glad that you are taking part in this as well. We welcome you. We welcome those in the classic venue, those who are on our Moon campus, wherever this is finding you. Welcome to all of you. So, as we get started, I'm wondering, if you like to be comfortable, would you raise your hand? All right. I think that's, I think that's everybody. Some of you would have been more comfortable if I didn't make you raise your hand, but there you have it. Thank you for raising it. The fact is, we all like to be comfortable, and we know that. And so if you're with us in person today, whatever venue you are in, we've tried to give you a comfortable seat to sit in. And I hope that you are enjoying that. If you're watching online today, you've already found yourself most likely a comfortable seat that you're sitting in, probably chose a comfortable outfit from the closet if you got out of your pajamas at all for this, right? We like our comforts. There's no doubt about that and nothing wrong with that. Now, as much as we desire to have comforts, we all know that there are a number of obstacles that can get in the way of, ex- of us experiencing the comfort that we desire. For instance, at work, there are a number of circumstances that can come up at work that are, are tension-filled, and, and it steals our comfort in, in being there. We just get uncomfortable. You've, you've had that experience. Or if you have poor grades, it can leave you uncomfortable. Maybe because you just have that internal sense of I should be uncomfortable, or maybe because your parents are making you uncomfortable. Or there are other settings like a guilty conscience can leave us uncomfortable. 
or a failing relationship that we might have with a spouse or with a child leaves us uncomfortable. And when, wherever we find ourselves in a situation of discomfort, we're going to naturally do something to lead ourselves toward comfort. It happens all the time. It's just a natural inclination that we have. And there are all sorts of different means that we use toward that end. We even have something that we call comfort food, right? You know all about that. Comfort food is a very real thing. In fact, I did some studying on comfort food this last week. I even consumed some comfort food this last week, only, only as a means to research this message. That was the only reason why, but there are actually studies that have been done, and I was reading some of them, and there are polls that have been taken, and I wonder if anybody, and I'd like you to shout it out if you think you know, nice and loud so I can hear you through your mask, anybody want to take a stab at what America's number one comfort food is? That was it right there. Pizza. Pizza is number one in America. Of course, there are lots of others. You just shared a lot of them. Let me tell you some that come in right at the top of the different polls. A specific Harris poll was one that I was looking at, and you might just give a shout out if I mention yours. So, very high ranked is ice cream. All right. Mac and cheese. I heard that yelled several times by people, so I know that's one on your radar. Chips. Okay. Hamburgers is also very high as a comfort food. It just sounds like dinner to me, but it was very high. And kale. Okay, you're on to me. Yeah, kale is definitely not a comfort food. But there is another big one that I didn't mention. It's number one on women's list. Any guess? Chocolate. That is exactly right. There are any of a number of different comfort foods that we go after. But here's the thing. As much as we desire to experience that comfort... We don't always find it. You know that 67% of people admit, in these studies that I was looking at, 67% of people admit that they turn to comfort food to overcome some difficult circumstance that they're in, some challenge, some crisis, some desperation that they're feeling in their life. They turn to comfort food, which is interesting because comfort food really doesn't comfort Psychologists tell us that comfort food is actually just something that we use as a distraction something to help us to avoid having to deal with the thing that has made us uncomfortable in the first place. And there are other things like that that we turn to. Some people turn to alcohol to find comfort, others to other substances. Some people just pour themselves into work or into play as a way to avoid, it turns out, the difficult circumstance. This is the way that it is in our world today. And unfortunately, those things don't bring us comfort. All they do is delay our dealing with a situation which ends up just making us worse off than we were at the beginning. So, if there was something that could take us to the place where we could experience genuine comfort to meet us in the midst of our need, wouldn't you be interested in finding out what that is? I believe that you would. We all would. And the fact is, we can find that out. We can see it actually in a text that I want to take you to today and walk you through. Let me show you a highlight from that text. It says there, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. That's a pretty bold claim. 
And we're going to dig into that today as we think about this idea of finding comfort in crisis. Comfort in crisis. This is very important because we all face crises. We just came through a year that was filled with crises. And most people will tell you that we expect 2021 to be very much the same as what 2020 was. Maybe not all the same circumstances, but maybe a lot of the same ones. But that 2021 is going to be filled with crisis in just the same way. And it seems as though the events in our nation's capital just this week bear that out, don't they? Absolutely they do. Were you expecting to be hearing about people taking over, rioters taking over our nation's capital? It was shocking. But somehow not surprising. Because we've been making our way down this road for quite some time. And it's just another manifestation of what has been building all along. We are a nation that in many respects is in weakness. We're experiencing trouble and difficulty and we're trying to figure out how do we get through it. And we're not making real great progress along the way. It's a position of weakness that we find ourselves in, but not hopelessness. Definitely not hopelessness. Because where there is Christ, there is always hope. But if we're going to find the genuine hope that might be able to be found, He's the one we need to turn to. And we're going to do that today. Actually, this whole series that we're going to be looking into has to do with how we find strength in weakness. Now, the little passage that I read for you is actually from the beginning of a letter, and we call that letter 2 Corinthians. And I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians, if you would. We're going to be right at the very beginning of this letter as we make our way along, and we're just going to make our way through this over the next several weeks, all the way through 2 Corinthians. Corinthians. Looking very much forward to taking you through this. This is the beginning of this series that we're calling Strength in Weakness, and that's a theme that you can find throughout the whole of this letter. Different circumstances that provide or bring the weakness, but there's always a strength to be found, and we're going to take a look at what that looks like. We're going to see how we might find strength in the midst of what we deal with, We're going to see a number of circumstances in this letter, and we also are going to be very able to correlate that into where our lives are today. And so that's where we're headed, and I'm absolutely convinced that through this letter, you can find freedom from the challenges and the circumstances that have been plaguing you, maybe for weeks, maybe months, maybe even years. And the first strength and weakness that is offered in this letter is comfort in crisis. Okay? Comfort in crisis is where we are getting this started. Let's take a look at a few of the the details to see how we might be able to tap into this amazing promise. All right? Let's go ahead and jump in at chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. If you're not quite sure where that's found, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and look in the table of contents. It'll show you there. If you know how to find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that's where you'll find it. And uh, your Bible app, you can just search it and you'll find your way there. All right, so verse 1, 
chapter 1 says this. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, right away, by way of introduction, we learn that the apostle Paul is our author. Now, nobody really challenges Pauline authorship of this letter, and the reason is because it's highly personal. And you're going to see this as we make our way along. Paul is talking about what's going on in him. It's very autobiographical. It is something where we find him talking about What's bringing him encouragement? What's discouraging him? The people who are challenging him. He's, he's going to be bringing some defense of himself and his own authority as we make our way along here. It's very personal. So people really aren't challenging whether or not Paul actually wrote this letter. People also say that this is probably, scholars say that this is probably the letter that is the least well-known of all of Paul's letters. And my guess is that most of you have probably never really studied Second Corinthians. You might not even really know what's contained within Second Corinthians. Well, you will by the time we get to the end of this, and it's a real shame that that happens because this is so rich. Some of the best-known verses in the Bible are actually right out of Second Corinthians. It's just that we don't really know the context. We don't really understand that because chances are you've never really done a systematic study through this letter. Well, we're going to do that together here, and I think we're going to learn so much as we do. These opening verses don't only tell us that the Apostle Paul is the author, it also tells us that who are the recipients. It says it's written to this region of Achaia, and specifically the city of Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth, we've got a little map here, is located about 40 miles to the west of Athens. If you can picture, this is all Greece in that day. This is what is known as Achaia, this sort of brown color, and up above is Macedonia. That's all Greece today, but it was divided down in those two regions at that time. Now, it's a very interesting place, and it was also a crossroads, and you can kind of see how that would happen. Corinth is right here, and so if you're going to travel from the north down to the south into Achaia, you're going to have to come through this little strip of land. And Corinth is right there. Also, if you were traveling by ship or by boat and you were wanting to go from east to west, you might very well come up here into this port of Corinth and actually traverse your ship or whatever. They had some wooden rails and other ways of transporting boats across land, and so they'd move that across and then take off sailing from there. And as a result, this is a real crossroads. And so, of course, they would tax the people that would come through. And so, Corinth is actually a pretty wealthy city, pretty well-to-do. Religiously, it was also a very diverse sort of place because people would be traveling through and oftentimes what would happen is that they would end up staying there in Corinth and they'd bring with them their idols and they'd bring their, their gods and they'd bring their philosophies and, and it would start to become a bit of a melting pot religiously, although there was one god that sort of had prominence over the others. Carolyn and I had the opportunity to travel to Corinth a number of years ago, and there is one very dominant geographic sort of landmark, and that is this major hill that is right there in Corinth. It's called the Acre Corinth. And anywhere from anywhere in Corinth, you can certainly very easily see it. I think we've got a slide that shows it there. This is the hill. It's really the only hill there in Corinth. They call it the Acre Corinth. And on the top of this hill, back in ancient Corinth, there would have been a temple. And that temple was to the goddess Aphrodite. 
Aphrodite was a goddess of love and a god of passion, a god of pleasures, and that was reflected in the way that they worshiped Aphrodite. And in the temple, there would be prostitutes. There would be sex acts that were going on. And that's the way, that was a part of the worship. And you can see how some people decided, I want to be a part of that church, right? So that's what's going on. And it was, it was very lewd. It was a very promiscuous sort of society. In fact, Corinth was essentially very materialistic and very hedonistic. There was a love of things and there was a love of pleasure. And that's the context into which Paul is going as he enters into Corinth. And in many ways, that probably sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Because we have contexts in our own world today that are very much or could very much be described in that same way. And this is the environment he goes into. Paul visited the city of Corinth a number of different times. And here you can just see some more of its ruins. He was a tent maker. He came in and he was literally making tents while he was also preaching the gospel, and he starts the church of Corinth. And if you want some extra credit reading, go to Acts chapter 18, and it'll describe that for you. Paul was there for about a year and a half on that particular occasion, and he preached the gospel, and he started the church. The Jews weren't too happy to listen to him, but the Gentiles were, and there were a number who came to faith, and the church is launched there at that time in that place. Now, eventually, Paul would leave the city, but his heart was there, and so he would write letters to the church there in Corinth, and he would encourage them, and he would strengthen them, and sometimes he would challenge them as well to walk forward in the faith, and that's where 2 Corinthians comes into play. Now, based on what we call this letter, you would think that this is the second letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, right? That would make sense. First letter is called 1 Corinthians, second is called 2 Corinthians. But that's not the way that it was. If we were to reckon the number of letters that he sent in that way, what we're studying would actually be called 4 Corinthians, because we know of at least four different letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. Let me just fill you in on this a little bit. The first letter that he wrote to them has been lost. His first letter to them is lost, but we know that there was one because in what we call 1 Corinthians, there's a reference in chapter 5 and verse 9 to a previous letter that he has written. So the first letter we don't have. The second letter is what we refer to as 1 Corinthians. That was actually the second letter that he wrote to them. There's a third letter that was also lost, but we know about it because in what we call 2 Corinthians, it talks about this previous letter, a severe letter, one where he had some things to say to them that they weren't really wanting to hear and he didn't really want to have to say, but he had to say it because of what was going on. And, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, it talks about that previous letter. And so what his fourth letter is actually what we call 2 Corinthians, the one that we are going to be studying in our time together. Now, not to muddy the waters too much, but actually there's a pretty substantial change that happens in tone when we get to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, and we'll see it as we study our way along, but it sounds very different from chapters 1 through 9. And that has caused people to speculate because it's pretty pointed and, it's, and it sounds a little bit different. It's caused some people to speculate, well, that what that maybe is, is the third letter really wasn't lost, but it was tacked on to the end of 2 Corinthians, what we call 2 Corinthians, or the end of the fourth letter, and that that's actually what those last four chapters 
of Corinthians are, or Second Corinthians are. Now, we can't say that for sure. We don't know that for sure. Um, it's a possibility, but uh, it's speculation, and we need to understand that it's in that realm. But whatever it is, the fact is that we can have confidence that this is from Paul and that there is much for us to learn here. And so that's where we're jumping off today, and there's a lot for us to take a look at just in the few minutes that we have remaining. And so that's what I want to do with you here. There are a few things that Paul says here about comfort in crisis, and I want to, to draw these out so that we might see them as it related to him, but also that we might understand them as they relate to us, because these truths are definitely for us as well. And here's the first of those as we think about comfort in crisis. The first is that God's comfort abounds to us. That's what he says here as we get started. Now, let me show this to you. I, I love the fact that Paul doesn't say that God's comfort trickles to us, or if you work hard enough, you might be able to find a little bit of comfort from God. That's not what he says at all. He says that it abounds to us. Go back to verse 3 again. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. But there's more than that. Verse 5. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul here doesn't give us all of the details about the, the troubles that he's referring to, but there are any of a number of things that could be in play here. The church there in Corinth was oppressed. It was being opposed by any of a number of other people. It was being opposed by the Jews who weren't choosing to believe in Jesus or weren't choosing to accept the gospel. They had sort of pushed Paul out of the synagogue when he went to preach to them, and that's why the majority of the people in the new church in Corinth are Gentiles. So there would have been oppression there. There would have been from the followers of Aphrodite who are definitely living by a different lifestyle than what the church is calling its followers. So there's a tension that goes on there. There also are false teachers that have come into the church who are trying to proclaim a completely different message to that which Paul has brought. So there's conflict, there's crisis that is happening. It could be some of that that he's referring to. Or on top of that, you've got Paul himself had his own challenges with people opposing his ministry. They were questioning his qualifications for ministry. There's that. There's also the famous thorn in the flesh that Paul has, which is spoken of later on in 2 Corinthians. We'll get to that eventually, but that might be part of the crisis he's talking about. It could be the, that which they had experienced in Ephesus, which, which is a, a setting where there were people who were basically out to kill Paul. It could be any of those things. He was giving his life for the Lord and for the gospel, and in the midst of what he is trying to do on behalf of Christ, there's all this oppression that's coming at him. But he's not despairing. What does it say again in verse 5? It says, if you look at it again, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, he's saying just as we are working on behalf of Christ and as we do so, people are standing against us. So we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ who also was stood against. People oppressed him. Eventually, obviously, they killed Jesus. He's saying we're standing with him. And so as we work on his behalf, we are sharing in his sufferings, but goes on, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. It's very interesting that Paul doesn't say that our comfort abounds as we're delivering, delivered from our sufferings, but rather as we experience them. 
That's very telling. We need to grasp onto that and understand this. See, comfort here means strengthening. It's finding strength and weakness as we're talking about in this series. It's finding ourselves in a place the way that God sometimes comforts is by giving us the strength to overcome the circumstance that we're in or to stand up against the pressure that is being put on us, the anxiety that might otherwise come our way, the way that people are challenging us to give us the strength to move forward. Comfort comes as we're strengthened to face the challenges, not just finding them removed. And that's where sometimes we get into a trap. It's like, fine, I'll feel comforted as soon as you take all of this off my plate. Paul is saying you don't have to have it all off your plate in order to experience the full comfort of God. So ask yourself, what is it that is bringing your anxiety? What has you unsettled today? What's stressing you? Where is it that you're fearful and afraid? You can find comfort in the midst of whatever that is right now, whether or not it goes away. And it's not a cheapened comfort. It's the fullness because God's comfort abounds to us in Christ is exactly what Paul is saying. It's complete. It abounds. That means that the strengthening that he provides for us is fully equal to the challenge that we're up against. We never need to be underneath something that we cannot rise above, that we cannot find comfort and peace and strength in the midst of nothing. So if that's where we find ourselves, if you find yourself constantly overwhelmed by worry and fear and stress and anxiety, you're not leaning into the truth of what this is talking about. You're not experiencing the fullness of God. So it would naturally be a question we'd ask, how do you find that comfort? Through resting and through trusting. Resting and trusting. By resting our mind from the worry that continues to escalate the issue. You ever been there? Worried about something? You just keep worrying. It keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Paul's saying you can defeat that. Rest your mind in the promise of God's comfort. The fact that He will strengthen us. Lean into Him. And also by trusting by trusting in the promise that God will meet you in your circumstance. Not to drip His comfort your direction. It will be abundant because God's comfort abounds to us. That is so important to understand. That's the first of the truths. God's comfort abounds to us. You have a crisis? Pray. Lean into God. Ask Him to minister His presence and His comfort, and His peace to you. Another truth Paul drives home in these verses is that our comfort inspires others. Now, we normally think of comfort as something that is personal. It's for our individual benefit, and it is, to be sure, but it's more than that. It's much more than that. Look again at this text starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Verse 6, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. 
Paul here is teaching us something about the power of example. The truth is that we're always learning from other people. Even when you're not thinking about it, you're learning from the example of other people. It was through watching a carpenter that I learned to do some woodworking. It was through watching the pirates that I learned frustration. (laughs) It was through my brother that I learned that you can burp and sneeze at the same time. I didn't say that every example is a good example, but Paul comes up with one. It's comfort. You might not think of it at the time, but whenever you see someone going through a a problem or some pain or a challenge, you're watching. You're listening. As you hear somebody's dealing with this, you're paying attention. Maybe not, you know, real overtly, but you're taking it in. And sometimes when you see the way that somebody responds to something, you might respond yourself and say, if I ever find myself in that kind of situation, I am not going to respond the way that they did. It's kind of a negative example. But the opposite is also true, where you see somebody walking through a hardship or a difficulty or an illness, and you say, my goodness, look at the faith, look at the strength that they are experiencing, look at the comfort that they're finding. You tuck that away. You might need that right away, or it might not be something that is so urgently needed by you, but eventually you will. And when that time comes, you're going to remember. Remember what I saw in… Remember how they handled it. Their circumstances even worse than mine is, but they had such comfort and such peace. It's going to be an example to you that you can overcome, even if you don't have it all figured out at the moment. It's something that will encourage you. Your comfort inspires others is what we're saying here. Comfort is one of those good models, and Paul tells us that we have the power to minister it to others. When you face that crisis with faith and trust in God, comfort naturally abounds to us. And by extension, other people are going to benefit from that as well. That's how it works within the family of faith, but not just there. Interesting as this goes on, Comforting crisis is also a very powerful witness to those apart from Christ. In verse 6, Paul says, we saw this, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and, what's the word? Salvation. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. Now, it's not the distress that leads other people to faith. It's your response of comfort in the midst of it. Because people are looking on, it's like, my goodness, look at what they're dealing with, and look at the comfort that they're experiencing. Look at the, look at the peace, look at the, 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 the presence of God. They won't think of it in those terms. But look at the peace and the strength, the way that they're able to keep their head up in the midst of the intense pain and problem and crisis that they are going through. It's a powerful example to others. Over and over again, in times of crisis, in dire diagnoses, in death, I've watched so many of you walk through it with a comfort, with a peace. And it's a witness to others. Honestly, it's been a witness to me It's built my faith. It's taught me about comfort as I've walked you go through it. Now, it doesn't mean that you're comfortable, but the thing is that God can 
minister His comfort even in the midst of the most uncomfortable circumstances. And so many of you have testified additionally, as I've thanked you for that example. It's like, well, that's got to be from the Lord, because left to myself, I would not have that sort of strength. And you're exactly right. Without the Lord, I'd just be a mess in this situation. You're right. The strength does come from the Lord. When it comes to comfort, the truth is that God's comfort abounds in you. Our comfort inspires others. We need to recognize that. It's not just we're somehow trying to claw our way through the difficulty. We're ministering to others in the midst of it. That doesn't mean you just try to put on some good front. It means that you really lean into Christ, who is the one who can minister His comfort to you in the midst of whatever it is that you're dealing with. One more truth. True comfort relies on God. As Paul goes on, we get a glimpse of just how dire his situation was. Let's look at this. Verse 8, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Again, we can't say exactly for sure what he's talking about here, but he's talking about Asia. It could be the situation that was going on in Ephesus where he thought he was going to lose his life. Whatever the situation, he thinks he's as good as dead. That's what makes this passage so powerful as it continues. Second half of verse 9, look at it. But this happened, all this problem, this crisis happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. For most of us, when some kind of crisis or situation arises in our life, our first inclination is to do something about it, to deal with it. And oftentimes, we just take care of it if it's something that we're able to take care of. That's just the way that it goes, and we just do it. And when that happens, we feel some relief that it's gone. We find comfort in the fact that we've been able to overcome that situation, to be free of it. But underneath that relief, probably without even knowing it, as we provided for our own comfort, there's a little brick that is put into a wall that separates us from God. Now, just that one little situation doesn't seem like that big of a deal, and in some senses it's not. But the next time it happens, we seek to provide for ourselves out of our own abilities, out of our own talents, out of our own resource. Another brick is placed in the wall. And the greater the crisis that we navigate on our own, the more bricks that are put into that wall. And if the pattern keeps up, eventually we're going to find ourselves walled off from God. We still believe in God, but we find ourselves walled off from His comfort. And eventually a circumstance is going to arise that is so big that we can't deal with it on our own. We can't 
find our own comfort. We can't get through it on our own. And all of a sudden, we're like, well, well, where's God? What's up with that? Why is He so distant? Why is He ignoring me? That's not the problem at all. The problem is that we've walled ourselves off from God because we've chosen to take it on on our own and work to deal with it and process it on our, because that's what we've taught ourselves to do. With just the smallest little thing to start, one little brick, but it just kept building because we kept relying on ourselves instead of resting in God. But God in His grace allows crises to come, not to destroy us, but to destroy the wall so that there might be access again to Him. In His mercy, He allows those things to come. Why? So that we might rely on Him. Did you notice what it said there as we read through it in verse 9? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. That's what Paul is saying. He says that the circumstance that was threatening his life was a benefit to him because it forced him and others to run to God, to depend on Him. For some of us, we're spending all of our time relying on ourselves. We're not leaning into God. We're not experiencing His comfort because we're not putting ourselves in a place where we're even asking for it, where we're even seeking it or desiring it. We're not praying for it. Our first inclination when something comes up is just to take it on ourselves in the midst of something you're dealing with right now. How much time have you spent engaged in prayer, on your knees, asking that God would be the one who would provide versus just getting after it? True comfort relies on God, Paul is saying. And then Paul concludes this section with this thought, picking it up again, the second half of verse 10. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Paul has confidence that God works all things together for good and that, we will, that He will deliver us, sometimes completely out of the situation, but even if in the midst of it, He'll deliver comfort and peace to us. And he says, instrumental in us experiencing that are the prayers of God's people. That is so, so important. But what I'm afraid of is that we are taking this most powerful weapon in our arsenal and we're keeping it in the holster. We're not using it. We're not applying it. We're not experiencing its fullness, not toward ourselves. Or what he's saying here is that it's the prayers of people that are benefiting others. Who else are you cheating out of God's favor? Because you're not praying. Here we are at the beginning of a new year. You're making new decisions. You're trying new patterns. Why not the pattern of prayer? If you're dealing with anxiety and stress and worry and fear, it says right here, you can find an answer for that. On your knees, running to God, resting in Him, putting our trust in Him. Look, we've just closed out this year of crisis, but as we've said, the events at the Capitol just vividly remind us that more crisis is coming. 
2021 is not going to be crisis-free. That doesn't mean that we should just go find a bunker and hunker down. Not at all. God will meet us in every crisis with supernatural comfort. And as we live in it, it will inspire and influence others. And as our comfort abounds and our prayer abounds as well, we will, get, we will see where and what Satan intends for evil that God will take and He will use for good because that's what He does. That there is no circumstance that God cannot take and use for good. He will carry on to completion the things that He has begun in us. Those are promises, but not until we get on our knees and live as the people of God, not as a people of a party, not as people of a personal agenda, but the people of God to whom God promises comfort in crisis, which is just the beginning of finding strength in weakness. We are all in circumstances of weakness all the time. There are things that we cannot simply provide on our own that we need to lean into someone else to provide. And that's the beauty of 2 Corinthians because it tells us again and again that just because we are weak doesn't mean we're stuck weak. It means it's simply a springboard from which we can experience the strength that comes only from God. That's what Paul's saying. He's thanking God for his weakness because it's causing him to rely on God. Are you willing to rely on God in a new way? That's my challenge to you as we make our way through this series, that we would not ignore our weakness, not try to just push it out of the way, but that we would recognize that it's a doorway that opens us up to the strength of God, to pray for it, to lean into it, and to find God working in your life in a way going forward that you've never experienced before. And this is the pattern on how to get there. This is the promise of what it will accomplish, comfort in crisis. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for this letter. The Apostle Paul dealt with so much that we can learn from, that we can grow through. Here's a guy who was out in front of pretty much everybody else when it comes to being a follower of You, of leading others, of, of being a devoted disciple. And he's one who experienced great weakness. But he didn't get stuck there. He found strength there. And we can too. Lord, so often when we experience weakness, it is something that just sets us aside. We even get a a negative view of ourselves. It can just be discouraging and so despairing. Lord, instead, help us to see that it's simply an avenue through which we can accelerate our approach to you and where we can find you and we can experience the fullness of what you have to provide for us, strength in weakness. Lord, I pray for my friends who are listening, who are dealing with crises of their own, anxiety, stress, worry, fear, whatever that would be. Lord, we would pray not so much that you would just take it away, which is where so often we just get stuck in prayer, but that you would minister your comfort to us in the midst of it all. Father, we pray toward this end. 
And Father, we pray on behalf of our nation. We see crises abounding all around us, shocking but not surprising. Lord, I just pray that you would use even these most recent circumstances in a way that would cause us to open our eyes and to recognize there needs to be a new direction that is turned, that we can't simply keep going down the same path. It's only becoming more and more incendiary, but rather that we would stop, that we'd turn around. Lord, my prayer would be that we would turn to You, who is the one who can provide what is necessary. So Lord, I pray that you just humble us through these circumstances, through whatever you would choose to allow our way, that we might not just press down a road of destruction, but rather that we'd find healing and ultimately that we'd find you and that your people, by living the example of finding comfort in you in the midst of the most horrible circumstances, that it would cause other people to open their eyes and that it would be a benefit toward their salvation as well. Lord, there's much to do. We just pray for your leading, your guidance in our own individual lives, that you might use us as a powerful witness in our world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.